This is part two of a conversation with Peter Kelly on childhood, history, and critique, recorded in May 2015 for the Society for the History of Children and Youth. You know, maybe I could shift. I provided you with the essay that I'm writing as part of this episode for CHC, and I have incident in a main prison involving an inmate named Paul Slosher and a practice called the cage that was used as a, a way of uh, or handling conflict between the boys at uh, South Oak Cliff High School in Dallas, Texas. Uh-huh. And I'm interested in, in hearing what your thoughts are about these situations in the, in the wider context of youth, hope, rage, or... Maybe I'd, I'd answer that by talking about uh, a project that I'm trying to, to work with in uh, with colleagues in Australia at the moment called uh, The Wicked Problem of Young Men, Masculinity, Alcohol and Violence. And I don't know if you're aware of that concept of the wicked problem. The wicked problem, you can't put your finger on, you can't tame them easily. Yeah, that's right. That's right, and and so people who are listening to this may not have heard that term before, but it comes from uh, a paper in the late seventies that had been taken up in a number of other contexts. So a tame problem is something that's we can readily define it in the first place. Yeah, uh, and by being able to readily define what the problem is, we can more easily suggest solutions and/or interventions. A wicked problem, we can't even come up with a definition of what to include in the problem or exclude from the problem or how it is that we work with it. And as a consequence, any solution, if there is such a thing in inverted commas, scare marks, uh, is itself incredibly problematic. So one of the things in that project and, and why we've termed it the wicked problem is that it comes back to the ways in which health promotion agencies see the problem of young men and violence and alcohol and the relationships between those. Young men get drunk, become violent, and we've got to do something about that. And the intervention usually is an education campaign about, in Australia, for instance, take the form of uh, look after your mates, don't get drunk. So there'll be TV ads, web campaigns, a whole variety of things that will take up that message. And one of the things that we're trying to include in that discussion is that that removes things like commodified and glorified violence in global sports contexts. The total war and and, uh, capabilities of nation states, the ways in which wherever there's a problem, we preface it with a war on drugs, a war on terror. And at this point in time, we've commodified and glorified violence in ways probably... You know, people would say, oh, yeah, but the Romans did this in the Colosseum and stuff like that. But it's it's ubiquitous in a, in a 24-7, always-on, always-connected uh, digital media space. Violence is such a part of our lives. And so what we want to do there is to widen out what it is that we think about when we talk about young people, young men, alcohol and violence, to talk about a culture of violence that takes different forms and you know, it's okay to watch cage fighting. Exactly. It's okay to participate in cage fighting. The issue is if you're at a on the street on a Saturday night and you're drunk and you hit somebody or get involved in a fight, that's not okay. The Saturday night incident 
is fundamentally shaped and influenced. Even if we don't adopt the cause and effect argument, somebody watches violent videos, it makes them violent. We don't have to go there. don't have to make that relationship, although stakeholders will want us to make that relationship because that's evidence. Show us the evidence that says there's a direct correlation. Well, we don't have to imagine it as a direct correlation. We just have to imagine there are global cultures of violence. Those cultures of violence emerge and shape, emerge in and shape a whole variety of things that are removed from the telecast cage fight, mm-hmm. are removed from you know the use of drones to remotely bomb uh, people who we who look like they're of combat age and are male. Or I wonder if all we have to do, because that point about causality is real, is one that I confront all the time, and as I'm listening to you, I'm very familiar with that. It seems to me one thing that I would say is that we could also turn it around. Think about what is happening in a cage fight, or think about what a soldier is being asked to do in a room in Arizona flying a drone that's halfway around the world. Mm-hmm. In fact... It's an extraordinary feat of discipline that when the whistle is blown, you stop hitting someone in the face who is hitting you in the face, Mm -hmm. in the cage. And it's an extraordinary feat of discipline that a soldier totally disconnected from the ground there and the people and the environment in, let's say, Iraq will push a button as he's told, and there are some very graphic documentaries about this, even though he he said moments earlier, that looks like a boy that just came out of that. No, it's not. That was a dog. And boom. It's impossible to be surprised at violence and to pretend the problem of power or the violent use of power is located in the person rather than the situation. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's an interesting, uh, an interesting perspective and an interesting angle on on some dimensions of 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 that issue. Foucault used the concept of uh, of the training of soldiers as one way to talk about what he was talking about in terms of discipline. All those all those myriad little events and practices standing to attention. Drills, all those things that will make you into a particular form of person. Uh, and, and in the case of the military, that's an extreme version of discipline, if we can use the word extreme, but it's a particular version that has a particular aim in mind to make a soldier. Mm-hmm. But understanding schooling as being partly and, and to a large extent about discipline, about producing young people who are capable of recognising themselves and governing themselves in particular ways the young people who are at risk in that context, those who don't conform to those demands of discipline are, for whatever reason are unable to, choose not to, fight, resist, contest. And then even even those who have developed that form of docility, as Foucault would talk about, there's an unruly body, mind and soul at play there, always. Discipline is never complete and or universal and forever. And so violence is... One of the ways to imagine it is that discipline breaks down at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I would not imply that any of the actors have to be conscious of exactly what is happening to them in a, a situation where there's high levels of unemployment, where there, where there isn't a lot of opportunity. Continuing with the expectation 
that the disciplinary regimes are going to be able to get people to control space, time, and bodies is an unreasonable expectation. And I think that's one of the things that we've seen in the last decade and a half in particular, and maybe even longer. We put young people in prison in greater numbers than ever. We criminalise more and more activities and make them punishable by prison terms. There, there is, in some respects, an assault or a war on those who, who do not conform, who don't want to conform, who say, well, look, you know, the story you're telling me here, study hard, go to university, get a degree, work hard, it, it doesn't make sense to you because that's not my life. I don't see that anywhere. And I also see that people who have conformed to that narrative, that, that dominant story about what it is to be young and growing up, I graduate with a degree and hundreds, well, tens of thousand dollars of debt and, and no job. And it's particularly in North America where uh, in Canada, the solution to every problem seems to be, in the United States it's historically been the case as well, um, but the Canadian figures are even higher for participation in uh, post-secondary education right now. For um, So if you try to get 42, 43, 45% of the cohort to go to post-secondary education. In Ontario, uh, we've increased uh, compulsory education in high school from age 16 to 18, trying to force people to go. You and, and I and the people listening to this, uh, we've all devoted our lives to education. We, we of course, believe in, in education and we've participated in it. But the madness of thinking that a solution to the problems that are confronting young people in terms of exclusion and marginalization is just forcing them to go to school. Yes, more school. What's your, if more school is the answer, what's the problem? We all know that you know, without those sorts of qualifications, you are at risk. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> but the, the answer isn't necessarily forcing more and more young people to be in places that you know, they find completely irrelevant for longer periods of their life. And this really is a wicked problem because it's not clear what, what the alternatives are around this. I mean, I could sort of wish for there to be less credentialism. And I think in that context of a wicked problem with no easy solution, we make individuals responsible. The self as enterprise is a, is a self, a form of being a person that is autonomous, that is choice-making, that is prudential and is risk-aware and responsible. So because the state can't provide the solutions, certainly corporations don't because they have self-interested base in terms of uh, their shareholders. Mm-hmm. So in face of those wicked problems, who the contradictions and paradoxes of global capitalism are left to the individual disorder. So those young people who are best equipped to do that will survive in some way, shape or form. Larger and larger numbers of young people in coming generations, particularly when we see the ways in which austerity and the welfare state is being reconfigured and markets are becoming, education has become much more marketised and commodified. Generational debt, we can't pass on generational debt as as a state. We can't have state debt levels that in impoverish coming generations apparently, but we can individualise the debt for higher education. We can shift it from the state to individuals and have them graduating with forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars of debt and that's okay. So there's a movement to individualise the responsibility for the management of those wicked problems. Sort it out 
and you'll sort it out by conforming and developing skills and abilities and engaging in lifelong learning every time you retrench, go and remake yourself. Um, and again, I think we see around the world that particularly in the liberal democracies, the state is prepared to lock up and criminalise more and more of the population. When that population doesn't conform to those demands and isn't willing to accept that as an individual, they're responsible for the management of a biography in, in contexts where so many things have changed, a biography are beyond our control, beyond anybody's control, because they're wicked. What would you say to those who would say that the idea of a wicked problem can only lead to immobilization or despair? Yeah, but I, we, can't, we can't develop responses unless we imagine the problems in particular ways. Just because, again, and that's the thing about by saying something's a wicked problem and you know, the, the outcomes are unclear and what it is that we should do is unclear, it doesn't mean that we stop acting. It's just that we need quite possibly to think about the problem differently. You know, So the problem of higher education, how, how to fund it, the solution at the moment in a lot of countries is to privatise the cost of that. In lots of other countries, the state continues to provide free higher education. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so the problem looks different. When I was in Copenhagen at the Journal of Youth Studies Conference, a lot of discussion about the, the, the Nordic model of the welfare state that is not just about payment of unemployment benefits or pensions or whatever. It's how you imagine education and labour markets and a whole variety of things and what role the state plays in that, what roles and responsibilities the individual has. They have a completely different way of understanding the problem and of responding to it, and they have different outcomes as a consequence. So, yeah, it is a wicked problem, but it takes on particular characteristics in the sort of individualised uh, neoliberal democracies of North America, of, of the Anglo-speaking world. And, and the problem with a lot of conversations at the welfare state is constructed as a safety net. Safety net. It's not a safety net. It is, it's an enabler that enables people to participate in those uh, labour markets and conduct family lives and do all of those things that are held up as narratives that structure our society. If you're ill-housed, if you're ill, if you're unemployed, it's very difficult to, to conform in those circumstances. But we individualise that inability to conform and say, well, it's as a result of your own actions or, or your inability to um, ensure yourself, you know, it's your problem. There's other ways to imagine those wicked problems. Well, Peter, I really appreciate your spending uh, your morning with me. As I said, thanks for the opportunity. Bye-bye. You've been listening to part two of a conversation with Peter Kelly on childhood, history and critique recorded in May 2015 for the Society for the History of Children and Youth.